continue this morning our study of the book of Revelation, may we be reminded of the fact that you did not write this book through John just for our entertainment or for us to get thrills or for us to get speculative over the spectacular events which are yet to occur in future history. Lord, we know that this was not written also in order to be a challenge to our intellect so that we might somehow or another pride ourselves on how much we know or how well we can interpret all these interesting chapters. But Father, we know that you wrote this book in order that we might be brought to have a knowledge of you and of your Son, and that your what your program for the last days is, so that we might be motivated to be about the business of sharing the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in view of the urgency of the hour in which we live. We know that Peter said that when we know these things will come to pass, that you, Father, make a demand on us on what kind of persons we would be. Paul put it like this. He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And so we just thank you for this study, and I pray, Lord, that it is having the effect on hearts that we ask that it would have, that we would redeem our time wisely, just being your servants and spreading the gospel to those who do not know you. And we thank you now in advance for what you're going to teach us this morning in your word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, for he truly is the teacher here. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In a New Mexico desert, on July 16, 1945, the first atomic bomb was exploded in great secrecy. And then three weeks later, on August 6, at 8.15 in the morning, some of you probably remember this day very well, President Truman gave the order to drop an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. And that bomb killed 70,000 people and leveled two-thirds of that city. And World War II came to an end. Well, four years later, the Soviet Union also gained the scientific knowledge on how to develop atomic bombs, and the Cold War began. In 1952, the United States proceeded to test the first hydrogen bomb. And the resulting explosion from that first test was so immense that a one-mile-long island in the Pacific Ocean just blew right out of existence, leaving nothing but a 175-foot-deep hole in the ocean floor. Today, there is an ever-increasing number of countries which possess atomic weapons. And worse, more scary is that some even carry a heavy arsenal of bacterial weaponry. The Center for Defense Information estimates that in the United States alone, there is in existence an arsenal of over 35,000 nuclear weapons, and that the United States has the ability to produce these weapons at the rate of three a day. Each bomb has the equivalent of 460 million tons of TNT, which gives them the individual, each bomb, the individual explosive power, which is 35,000 times greater than the bomb which was dropped on Hiroshima. Can you imagine that? 
Russia's 100 megaton hydrogen bombs are individually capable of creating an all-consuming fire which is 100 which would be 175 miles in diameter and 20 of these super h bombs could destroy 75% of the United States population in just 60 minutes american retaliation to that could annihilate 400 million people of russian and nearby chinese descent in merely 30 minutes. So you can see it would not take long to wipe out the population of the world. It's very interesting that the book of Revelation, which was written at the end of the first century AD, long before anybody could dream of something so devastating as nuclear bombs, that it contains the descriptions of massive destructions of the end times, which incredibly correspond to the destruction which is caused by nuclear bombs, nuclear warfare. The Apostle Peter described the latter-day devastations of this planet in such a way that make it appear, really, that he was describing a nuclear war. Just listen to what he wrote if you can't see those words. He said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, and then Peter goes on to talk about what manner of persons ought we to be. That's in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. Now, if we consider that verse, not in the English, but in the original Greek in which it was written, we'll find that he used, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, terminology which perfectly describe a nuclear explosion. The word element, for example is described in the lexicon, the word lexicon, as, quote, the components into which matter is divided. Now, the components into which matter is divided are what? What are they? Atoms, exactly. But they didn't know that back in the first century. The word dissolved, which is used in verse 11, is the word luo. And in Greek, it is a word which means to loose that which is bound to loose that which is bound, and that is exactly what happens in nuclear fission. And the term great noise that Peter used in that verse is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. It's a word which signifies a rushing sound like that of roaring fires. And then the term fervent heat that Peter also used comes from a medical term which speaks of a, a fever, a high fever. But Peter's use of it here in application to inanimate objects is the only known usage of this term, this word, in all of Greek literature, not just the New Testament, but in all of Greek literature. Normally that word, fervent heat, which means fever, is used in regard to people. Here it is used in regard to inanimate objects. What Peter very well seems to have been describing by way of these very accurate words and terms that he was inspired to use is the loosing of the atom and the resulting explosive noise that it makes and then the rushing fiery devastation which it brings.
And Zechariah 14.12, which was written even before Peter wrote what he wrote, Zechariah was written hundreds of years before Christ. It's another example of biblical prophecy regarding the last days, which describes what could very, very well be the result of atomic warfare. Zechariah wrote a perfect description of what we now know, sadly, happens to the sad victims of nuclear warfare. We know this from Hiroshima. Zechariah said this in 1412, And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Horrible picture, isn't it? In John's description, the Apostle John's description of the trumpet judgments which emerge from the seventh and final seal judgment, we find devastation which could very, very possibly be the result of a global holocaust caused by atomic warfare. Now, In this lesson, which I have entitled Seventh Seal, Silence and Sounds, we come to the opening of that seventh and final seal, which happens to be a very, very long judgment. This last seal is a long judgment because it is composed of the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet judgment is composed of the seven vile judgments. So actually, when the 14 parts of this seventh seal are completed, the Lord Jesus Christ will return in his glorious second coming. So everything from this point until the culmination, when the Lord comes to establish his kingdom, is contained in this final seventh seal. Therefore, you can imagine, it is a very serious seal. And because of its seriousness... There is an eerie silence in heaven when the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, opens it. And this silence is what we're going to discuss discuss in part one of our outline <clears throat> when we look at just verse one. Silent heaven. And then we're going to consider some more serving angels in verses two to five. In part two of our outline. In verses 6 to 12, we're going to discuss the judgments which fall upon the earth following the blowing, one by one, by angels, of the first four trumpets. That's all that's included in chapter 8 is the first four trumpet judgments. And those four trumpet judgments make up part 3 of our outline, and we have appropriately entitled that Sounding Trumpets. And then there is going to be one more angel that we'll look at. This is an angel who flies through the midst of the atmospheric heavens right above the earth, and he solemnly warns the world of the next three trumpet judgments by saying, Whoa, whoa, whoa. And so we'll look at soaring warnings. So our outline is silent heaven, serving angels, sounding trumpets, and soaring warning. So with that introduction, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 8, silent heaven. John says, and when he, now who does the he go back to there? Right, the lamb, remember, it's the, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's opening every one of the seven seals. And when he, the lamb, had opened the seventh seal, there was silence. In heaven, 
about the space of half an hour. Now, the first thing that I need to make very clear with regard to this verse is that contrary to popular male opinion, this verse cannot be used to scripturally prove that there are no women in heaven just because there's silence for 30 minutes. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about that yesterday. My husband talks a whole lot more than I do. Do do you have talking husbands? (laughs) I don't know why they always say women talk so much. You ought to hear them on the phone. Mm. Anyway, that that was a joke. (laughs) There are women in heaven. Now, this 30 minutes of silence is the lull before the storm. In the previous lesson, last week's lesson, remember we learned that the last three sealed judgments were different from the first four. Remember that? Um, The last three actually gave us responses to God's divine wrath upon the earth. The first response was that of, who remembers? You don't remember. Prayer. (laughs) When the martyred saints under the altar were praying. So the first response to judgment was that of prayer. Then the second response was that of, here's the word, fear. When the um, unsaved of the world were so fearful and they were praying for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. Well, the third response is what we come to now. The third response is the response of silence. So we had the response of prayer from saints, martyred saints. Then we had the response of fear without repentance on the part of the ungodly. And now we have the response of, of silence by heaven. Now, the total absence of sound in heaven is very unusual because, as we know from the scripture, heaven has never been silent. Even before the creation of the universe, before the creation of the heavens and the earth and all the creatures, the triune Godhead communicated among themselves. God the Father talked to God the Son, and God the Son talked to God the Holy Spirit, and they They all communicated. And then from the moment of the creation of angelic beings, we know that there has been their continual sound of praise in heaven. Heaven is a place of voices adoring and glorifying and praising their creator, as we saw, remember, back in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. Think for a moment how much sound has been occurring in heaven just prior to to uh, this seventh seal sudden silence that we're looking at. John heard a voice like a trumpet, remember, saying, Come up hither into heaven in chapter 4, verse 1. And when he was immediately ushered before the throne of God, he told us of lightnings and thunderings and voices which proceeded out of the throne. And then he told us about the praise of the four living creatures who repeatedly, day and night, said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And he told us about the praise of the 24 elders who fell down off of their thrones and then cast their crowns onto the sea of glass. And then they also lifted their voices in praise of God. And then, of course, in chapter 5, following the great moment when the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, took that scrolled title deed from his Father's right hand, there was incredible sound which emitted from heaven as the living creatures and the elders all played on harps and sang their new song of verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. 
And then they were joined by the voices of 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. In verse 11, and then by every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. And that scene, I mean, that's a lot of noise, right? (laughs) That scene was followed by the noise of thunder when the lamb opened the first seal. And then we had the thundering hoofbeats of the four horsemen as they proceeded across the scene following the commands, come and see, of each one of the four living creatures. And then there were also the loud cries of the multitudes of slain tribulation saints who were under heaven's altar crying out for God's name to be vindicated. And there was the voice of the one who responded to them. Remember, gave him a white robe and told him to just wait a little season. And likewise, there was the sound of the great shaking of the heavens and the earth, which caused the stars to fall like unripe figs and caused the heavens to roll up like a, a scroll. And the commands from heaven's throne must have been issued to that angel who came from the east in order to instruct with a loud voice the four angels holding back the four winds not to hurt the earth or the sea or the trees until the 144,000 had been sealed. And then also there was the loud cry of the great tribulation saints who were so many in number that no man could count them. And they praised God and they praised the Lamb for their salvation, which, and they did it with such intensity that the four living creatures and the 24 elders just couldn't sit there. They had to join in with them, and they gave the Lord another sevenfold doxology of praise. Uh, that's in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. And then John himself couldn't keep quiet, and he had a conversation with one of the elders. But suddenly, all of these sounds of adoration and praise and and singing and uh, praying and playing instruments and commands and hoofbeats and talking and thunderings and lightnings and voices, all of that came to a sudden screeching halt when the lamb loosed the seventh seal. There was instantly dead silence. And heaven remained still, we're told, for about the space of half an hour. Now, what is this silence? Well, it is the silence of anticipated judgment. It's the silence of solemn expectancy. Furthermore, I believe it's the silence of weeping, the silence of mourning, The silence, John told us, was about half an hour. Well, how long is half an hour by minutes? 30 minutes. The number 30 in the Bible is the number of mourning or weeping. So the 30-minute silence in heaven could very possibly signify the Lord God himself mourning over the destruction which would come upon the earth and mankind with this seventh seal. Ezekiel 33.11 tells us that God takes no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. He does not delight in executing judgment. He doesn't ex- uh, delight in executing these final judgments, these horrendous judgments which will fall during the tribulation. He mourns over it. And in doing so, he also gives men upon the earth another you know, additional 30 minutes to decide between heaven and heaven 
and hell. Do you realize that the average lifespan is about 70 years, the Bible tells us? I think people are living, there are more um, people living to 100 nowadays, so it's a little bit longer than that, it seems to be, at least in the United States. But it only takes six seconds to get saved. Think about that in in light of of how long your life has been to this point. Six seconds to get saved. You know, all you really need to do is say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. And that takes six seconds. And think of that in light of eternity. What an investment of time. (laughs) That just really came home to me this week when I thought about how little time it really takes to get saved. And how big of a difference it makes forever and forever and forever. So God is giving the earth dwellers 30 minutes to choose between heaven or hell. So this can imply, again, the 30 minutes, the Lord's hesitancy to judge. Additionally, these 30 minutes will serve to focus all of heaven on the seriousness of what is to follow the loosing of this seventh seal. Now, 30 minutes in itself is not really that long. You know, time seems longer or seems shorter based upon our circumstances and the margin of suspense. Now, for example, if if you have a loved one who is in surgery in the operating room and you're out in the waiting room waiting for you know, the news from the doctor. 30 minutes can seem like eternity, right? Whereas if you're on the phone with your best friend, <laughs> 30 minutes can just go like that. Your husband is there, you know, <laughs> Catherine, look at the time. So time is long or short based upon your circumstances. Now, if I was to stop right here in my message, and if I was just to stand up here silently and not say a word for 30 minutes, it would seem longer to you than my normal hour of teaching. I know you don't think anything could seem longer than that, but <laughs> it would. If I just stood here and I looked at you and you looked at me, you I mean, 30 minutes would just go very slowly. 30 minutes of complete silence in heaven, a place which has always, always resounded with much noise and a lot of activity, will definitely serve to focus all of the universe on the fact that what is to follow... The lamb's loosing of this seventh seal is very serious business indeed. Well, that's all I'm going to say now about the silence. Let's move on to part two of our outline and look at some serving angels. And for this, let's read verse two. I'm going to look, well, under this section, we're going to talk about two different groups of angels. We'll look at seven angels before God, and then we'll look at a special angel. And that angel should be around with quotes around it. A special angel before the altar. So let's look, first of all, at the seven angels before God in verse 2. John says, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, the first thing to notice here about these seven angels is that little definite article, the, the word the. These are the seven angels, not just angels. Look back at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, I saw four angels. It doesn't say the four angels. But here we are told that these are the or the seven angels who stand before God. Now, Jewish tradition 
tells us that there are seven specific presence angels. In other words, seven angels who stand in the presence of God. And these presence angels are called archangels. Now from scripture, we know the name of only two of the archangels. Who are they? Gabriel and Michael, right. Gabriel and Michael. But Jewish tradition, again, gives us the names of the other five archangels, as does also the apocryphal book of First Enoch in chapter 20. Now, these sources are not divinely inspired, but they both agree, whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. But they say that the other five names are, and I hope I pronounced these right, Uriel, Raphael, Ragel, Saragel, and Remiel. And next week we'll have a test on those names. <laughs> oh, by the way, my Christmas gift to you all is no homework. Yes. <laughs> it was to myself, too, because I didn't have to do the answer sheet. Now, because this information doesn't come from the Bible, we don't, you know, dogmatically know whether this is true or not. So if you don't want to call these angels by their names, that's fine. If you don't want to even call them archangels. That's fine also. But one thing we know for certain is that they are the trumpet angels. They are each given a trumpet. And one by one, they're going to give a blast from those trumpets. And the blast will announce each one of the succeeding seven trumpet judgments. Now we might ask why are trumpets used to announce this second divine series of judgments? I mean, you know, why not trombones or why not harps or why not... Pianos or violins, why trumpets? Well, for one thing, the trumpet is a very powerful and expressive instrument, isn't it? It is. My son plays the trumpet. It's, it's a very loud <laughs> instrument. And trumpets are used more in the Bible than any other instrument, and they're used in a number of significant ways. First of all, trumpets, and this is not in any particular order, but trumpets are used to signal the personal intervention of God into human history. God announced, for example, his intervention in human history when he gave the Ten Commandments, and he announced that intervention with the sound of trumpets. God will definitely be intervening in human history during the judgments, the trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation. Trumpets were also used to summons to battle, as a summons to battle, and to announce the overthrow of the ungodly. An example of this is Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. This doesn't happen to be a picture of that. This is Gideon's men here, but I didn't have... Well, I have a picture, but I'm saving it for later of Joshua. So the trumpet judgments of Revelation... Now remember, the seven trumpet judgments are the seventh seal judgment. If somebody was to ask you, what's the seventh seal judgment? Is it an earthquake? Is it, you know, um, hail and all? No, you'd say the seventh seal judgment is the seven trumpet judgments. So the, the seven trumpet judgments will serve to summon the world to the battle of Armageddon which will end the rule of the ungodly. It will end the rule of the satanic trinity and all of the ungodly. Then trumpets were also blown to announce the arrival of kings 
and the trumpet judgments of Revelation will proceed because when the trumpet judgments are over, the, the vile judgments are over because out of the seventh, the seventh trumpet judgment is the, the seven vile judgments. So when the trumpet judgments are over, who will arrive on the scene? The King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the trumpet judgments are used to announce the arrival of the King. And then trumpets were blown to assemble the people. And this will, we know, not only be true at the time of the rapture, when the trumpet of God will sound to assemble all of the church saints, but it's also going to happen when the trumpet judgments of, of the tribulation blow. They precede the gathering together, the assembling together of all saints from all ages to join with Christ during the millennial kingdom. And then trumpets were used to announce the year of Jubilee. Remember every 50th year, the trumpets were blown at the time of the Jubilee and other important festivals and periods of rest. The Jubilee was the year of rest. The trumpet judgments will signify a great festival and the Jubilee of the world, which will be the 1,000-year kingdom. Furthermore, the trumpets of Revelation are warning judgments. They serve as warning to the earth in that, as we'll see this morning, only one-third of the world is affected by these trumpet judgments. Now, the bold judgments are going to be another story. They're going to affect the whole world. But these first four trumpet judgments only affect one-third of the world. So God, in the trumpet judgments, is giving mankind a warning. Trumpets were used to give warning. He always warns men before he judges them. That's just God's way. He did that with Lot. He did it with the people living at, in Noah's day. He did it with the people of Nineveh when he sent to them Jonah. And he did it with Israel over and over and over again. Very patient with Israel as he sent her prophet after prophet after prophet in order to warn her of impending judgment if she did not repent. And that's exactly what he does here. He gives the world a one-third warning with the trumpet judgments. I thought, you know, how we always, we have that little expression that we say, troubles come in threes. Well, maybe the first one is his one-third warning <laughs> to us to learn something. And maybe when we don't learn it, he gives us a second warning. And maybe that's why troubles come in three. You don't know. But the vast majority of the world during the trumpet judgments will refuse to heed his warning. Now, we do know that many, many do get saved, but the majority of people do not heed his warnings. And therefore, the bold judgments bring global devastation. All right, that's the seven angels before God, before the throne. Let's look now at a special angel before the altar in verses 3 to 5. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now this is really a beautiful section here. 
of the book of Revelation. And you'll understand when I talk about it. After John saw the seven presence angels receive their seven trumpets, he then noticed another angel. And this angel was standing before the altar of heaven performing the task that the high priest of Israel would perform. Now, there has been some disagreement among Bible scholars as to the identity of this particular angel. Some Bible scholars state that he is merely an angel, you know, as the scripture says, that he is an angel who is seen here presenting the prayers of the saints before God's throne. And their primary reason for saying that this is an angel is because he is referred to as an angel. And also because it tells us in verse 3 that he is given the incense. That he doesn't have it, but he is given it when he offers it up on the golden throne. Others, however, have argued from the point of view that since this angel is acting as the great high priest on behalf of God's people, and since the Bible never mentions any created being offering incense with the prayers of the saints to make them acceptable to God, that this special angel can only be who? Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. So Christ here, this is my opinion, you're free to believe whatever you think but my opinion is that this is Christ in just a number one of another one of his many offices here we see him in his ministry of intercession of conveying the prayers of the saints to his father to me this seems to be the best interpretation and to anyone familiar with the old testament it really is not surprising to have the lord jesus christ referred to as an angel Throughout the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before he became flesh, was presented in the Old Testament many times as the angel of Jehovah or the angel of the Lord. Christ was the angel of the Lord who spoke with Abraham. He's the angel of the Lord who wrestled with Jacob and who talked with Moses and who appeared to Joshua. These are what we call Christophanies, uh, appearances of Christ before he became flesh. His relationship to the people of the Old Testament days will be the same, you see, during the time of the tribulation, when the church is gone and when he is again dealing with Israel as a nation. And that may be very possibly why he is presented here as an angel priest interceding for his own people in the tribulation days. I believe this is a picture of the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ presenting the prayers of the saints before his father. Now, to understand what Christ is doing, or a special angel, if that's what you would rather, uh, what he's doing in these verses, we must consider what the Old Testament high priest would do. First of all, the high priest would go into the outer courtyard here to the brazen altar, This is a picture of the tabernacle, but the temple which followed was set up with the same kind of idea, the brazen altar being in the outer courtyard. 
This is where the animals were continually sacrificed for the sins of the people, was on top of that brazen altar. Well, the priest would pick up live hot coals off of the brazen altar, and he would put them into a censer, as this priest is holding in his hand. And the censer was carried on a chain. Now, I come out of Greek Orthodoxy, so I'm very familiar with this because our, our priest back then he always had a censer and it was filled with incense and he was always shaking it over all of us. And I, I would always get sick every Sunday from the smell. And Well, anyway, the, back to the high priest. He would carry those live coals from the brazen altar into the holy place, you know, the ho- holy place Right here is the holy place. This is the holy of holies, but right here is the holy place. And here, too. He would carry the live coals in his censer into the holy place. And uh, and then he would go to the golden altar, which is right here, also known as the altar of incense. Same thing, the golden altar or the altar of incense. And then he would take some of the incense from this altar and he would place it on his hot coals inside of his censer. And when the incense burned, then it gave off a beautiful fragrance. And this fragrance would rise before the thick veil see here's the veil they pull it aside so we can see into the holy of holies but the the incense would rise before the uh, veil in front of the holy of holies where the glory of God himself dwelt remember the glory of God dwelt above the ark of the covenant on the mer- you know above the mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim Incense would rise before God, and that incense rising up before God, where he dwelt, symbolized the prayers of the saints. See, our prayers, when we pray, they rise up, right? We hope they don't bounce off the ceiling, (laughs) but they go up to God. The hot coals, which the high priest took off of that brazen altar out in the courtyard, they spoke of the fact that there was no entering into the presence of God until there had been a sacrifice for sins. He didn't take a piece of the burnt meat off the altar, but to represent the sacrifice, he took the live hot coals and put it in his censer. And this Old Testament procedure was given, of course, to the Jewish people by God himself purposely in order to give them a picture of Christ. It's a foreshadowing of Christ. It's a type of Christ. Everything to do with the temple and the tabernacle is a picture of Christ. Christ on our behalf shed his blood as a sacrifice for our sins so that you and I could have access into the Holy of Holies, access to God. Not only eternally, but access now to him within our prayers. We, you know, now we can go boldly before the throne room of grace, can't we, with our petitions. And not only was Christ pictured by the lamb which was sacrificed upon the altar, you know, he was the lamb that was sacrificed out there on the brazen altar, so to speak, but he's also pictured by the incense, which was, if you read about the incense, they had a recipe for it. There were four ingredients that went into the making of this very special incense which the high priest used. And one of those ingredients was frankincense which is appropriate that that was what the Lord received, you know, by the wise men when they came to visit him. 
But these four spices are mentioned in Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 to 38. And this mixture was regarded as so holy, so very holy by the Jewish people, by command of God. I mean, he's the one who said it was holy, that they were absolutely forbidden to use it for any common purpose. They couldn't use it to make their homes smell good. They couldn't make it for for them to smell good. They couldn't make it for sensual purpose. They couldn't use it for any other purpose other than being used for um, in, in the temple. And if they did, it was a sin punishable by death. I mean, God was serious about this. And be, that's because he's giving a picture of his son. And his son is the incense, and he is so perfectly holy. Christ was not only to become the sacrifice burned on the altar, but he himself, like the incense, was to ascend up to heaven on our behalf. So Christ is not only the lamb on the altar, but he is the incense. He's not only the sacrifice, but he's the high priest. And amazing, just like last week we said he's the lamb and the shepherd. He, he's everything, isn't he? Now the incense, as I said, symbolically spoke of Christ's perfection. And it's also tied in with his ministry of intercession. The believer's prayers, our prayers, are mingled with the perfection and the worthiness of Christ in their presentation at the heavenly altar. It's only because of Christ's perfect sacrifice that the believer has access to God in prayer. And it is only prayer made to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we say in Christ's name. Only our prayers made through him which delight God. Of course, we have to be born again, really, to, to pray in Jesus' name. The prayers of the saints, which are mentioned in verse 3, which Christ offered upon the golden altar, now that's the altar of incense, along with the incense, they are the prayers of all of God's people. I hope you understand that saints in the scripture speaks of all born-again believers and not just some special group of people who have somehow or another arrived at sainthood. Sainthood, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, you are a saint. took me a long time to get used to that idea that I am a saint, but I am. Don't ask my husband if I am because he would disagree. But <laughs> Now these are the prayers of those who have prayed for God's will to be done on earth as it has been decreed in heaven. They are the prayers for his kingdom to come to earth. The prayers of all of those who have earnestly prayed just like John, even so, come Lord Jesus. These prayers were held, if you look at back at chapter 5 verse 8, remember where these prayers were held? They were held in golden vials by the 24 elders who represent the church saints. And these prayers are mixed together. They're taken and they're mixed together with the prayers of all the saints down through all of the ages, such as the prayers that we saw, you know, of the, of the tribulation martyrs under the altar, mixed together, and all of them are offered in the fire on the golden altar set before God's throne. And they rise before God and they are a pleasant, wonderful fragrance to him. 
he loves. You know, don't let's not think of our prayers as far as what can they do for us. That's usually the way we're focused because we're so me-centered. You know, oh, I was so blessed, or I had a prayer. You know, my prayer was answered, and we always think of how our prayers bless us. And um, but do we ever really think of how our prayers bless God? That they are as wonderful to Him as. A, a be- the most beautiful fragrance that you, you you enjoy, you know, your personal fragrance that that just delights your nostrils. Our prayers just give him total delight. So re- let's remember that when we pray, pray that not only are we receiving blessings from him and answered prayer and that sort of thing, but they are pleasant and wonderful to God. They rise before him and they just give him great delight. Well, on the Day of Atonement, let me see if I can find that priest with the censer in his hand. On the Day of Atonement, the Jewish high priest would put incense on the coals in the censer, and then with the blood of the animal sacrifice, he'd also take some of the blood from the animal which had just been killed on the um, brazen altar, and then he would enter into the Holy of Holies. Remember, this was only one day out of the year that he'd go back behind that veil into the Holy of Holies. However, in verse 5 of our scene, the Lord Jesus, who I believe is this special angel, takes the censer and he fills it with fire from the altar. And he doesn't do anything about blood because he's already shed his blood, right? All he does is he takes the fire from the altar and then what does he do with it? He casts it to the earth. And the parallel to this is found in Ezekiel chapter 10, and it tells us that this action of his signifies divine judgment. It also indicates to us that the prayers of God's people are actually the instrument for the judgments which are going to occur. You know, the same golden censer which held the prayers of all the saints and caused them to burn as a sweet savor to God, that same golden censer has now become a fiery weapon of judgment on earth. So this tells us that God is going to answer those prayers, you know, for him to vindicate his holy name and for his kingdom to come on earth as it has been willed in heaven. As these hot coals of fire in the censer are thrown down on the earth, then John tells us that there, this is at the end of verse 5, he hears peals of thunderings and lightnings and mysterious voices are heard. And then what is there? Another earthquake, we're told. So the sudden silence that we had back in verse 1 is broken in a shuddering sound of judgment, which is then followed by the blowing of the seven trumpets one by one. So we move now to our third part of our outline, sounding trumpets. But before I actually get into those, let me say that the four trumpet judgments, which we find here now in chapter 8, are different from the last three, just as we found that the first four seal judgments were different from the last three. These four trumpet judgments are, first of all, against nature, whereas the last three trumpet judgments will be against mankind. Also, we will see that the first four trumpet judgments are less severe than the last three, which were warned about. 
when we come to the end of this chapter, we're warned about the last three. We'll have to wait till January to read about them, but we're warned by the words, woe, woe, woe. All right, now we're going to talk about four trumpet judgments very quickly. I don't spend much time on this because they haven't happened, and I can't tell you exactly what they're going to be. But we'll be looking at the first trumpet, burned land, second trumpet, bloodied sea, third trumpet judgment, bittered waters, and the fourth trumpet judgment, blackened sky. So let's look at burned land, the first trumpet judgment, in verses 6 and 7. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Apparently, from verse 6 here, we find that the seven angels were waiting in readiness, you know, with their trumpets. And apparently, the Lord's casting of that censer filled with the hot coals down to earth, that was the signal for them to proceed. And so, the first angel sounded his trumpet. Now, before we consider the devastation... From that first trumpet judgment, let's take a minute just to, because this is so interesting, to compare this scene with the Battle of Jericho. You know, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho in the Old Testament book of Judges. Jericho, the city of Jericho, was about to be judged and destroyed. And this, of course, likewise will be true of the entire earth during the time of the tribulation. At Jericho, you all know this from Sunday school days, there were seven blasts from seven trumpets by seven priests who blew them after a sevenfold march around the city on the seventh day. And those seven blasts brought the walls of Jericho a tumbling down before the feet of Joshua. Well, in Revelation, we've come to the point where we're going to read now about seven blasts from seven trumpets by seven angels who blew them during the seven-year tribulation, which is also known as Daniel's 70th week. And those blasts will cause the earth to come a-tumbling down before the feet of another Joshua, the Lord Jesus. And you know his name is Yeshua or Joshua, same name. So I just thought that was very interesting. Now the first trumpet judgment is a judgment which is directed at the land. It is directed at the surface of the earth. It tells us that one-third of the earth's greenery or vegetation, the trees and the green grass, will be burned up. Now what causes this destruction? Well, we're told hail and fire mingled with blood. Now, it's interesting to realize that plant life, vegetation, was the first thing that God created 
on earth, back in Genesis 1, verses 11 to 12. And likewise, it's going to be the first thing that is destroyed here in these trumpet judgments. Now, it really shouldn't strike us as very strange that this is a literal catastrophe. Now, a lot of people, you know, mock the, the literal interpretation of the scripture and say, well, that can't really happen, etc., etc. It's the reason I talked about nuclear explosions at the beginning of this lesson, because uh, people aren't laughing quite so much anymore. But this, we should not think this is strange as a literal catastrophe because such strange things have happened before in human history, although on a smaller scale, you know, not one-third of the earth being involved. We have an example for, uh, we have an example of this in Genesis 19, when God rained down fire and brimstone on two wicked, perverted cities. What were those cities? Sodom and Gomorrah. And furthermore, when the seventh plague, by the way, the the trumpet judgments correspond with a lot of the plagues that fell upon Egypt. When the seventh plague fell on the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 to 26, the scripture tells us this. It says, And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, And it ran along upon the group. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that were in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. The hail and the fire of Egypt was so destructive, we're told here, that it actually killed men. And it killed the beasts, you know, the the cows and the animals out in the fields. So, therefore, and and it did vegetation as well. But when it killed the animals and and the men, blood was mingled with it. So we have fire, we have hail and fire mingled with blood. Well, before the dropping, as I said, of the first atomic bomb back in 1945, such fantastic descriptions, which would involve one-third of the earth, were just greatly mocked by the skeptics, you know, Bible skeptics and uh, critics, saying, you know, there's no way that one-third of the earth could ever be affected by something like hail and fire. But now, as I said, nobody much is laughing anymore. When a bomb exploded on Bikini Atoll, 10 million tons. Can you imagine how much water that is? I think this is hilarious. We're going to read about this. But these men went out there, you know, to, to try out this bomb. And, and they blew it on one of this. The Bikini Atoll is part, you know, it's near the Marshall Islands out in the Pacific Ocean. Well, when they, their bomb exploded, 10 million tons of water were tossed up into the sky as a result of that explosion. And that explosion, by the way, was caused by ex- explosive material which weighed half the amount of a dime. You know how light a dime is? (laughs) Half of the amount of a dime caused this explosion. Ten million tons of water going up in the air. Well, I guess the scientists or the men doing this hadn't thought about what would happen. But because of the terrific heat from that explosion, the water vaporized. You know, ten million tons of water vaporized because of the heat. Can you imagine that heat? And then it carried the vapor several miles up into the atmosphere where the temperatures were at sub-zero degrees. Well, you know what would happen. (laughs) This 
cause the water vapor to instantly freeze into hailstones which weighed hundreds of pounds apiece. And <laughs> these tremendous hailstones then fell back down on the scientists. And put, I mean, they ran for cover, I know, but it put huge dents in all of their experimental equipment and in the vessels below. I guess they had big ships or whatever. But I think that's a right. I could just see those guys. Wow. <laughs> but although we don't know for sure, we don't know for sure, this first trumpet judgment very well could be the result of God just allowing mankind to use his own diabolic devices on himself, you know, blowing up himself or, you know, having a limited nuclear war somewhere on the earth that would involve one-third of the earth. Oops, forgot my other picture up there. All right, so that's all I'm really going to say because, you know, the rest would be total speculation. But let's look now at the second trumpet judgment, bloodied sea. And for that, we look at verses 8 and 9. It says, And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, the first trumpet dealt with the land. The second trumpet judgment will deal with the sea. When the second angel sounded his trumpet, John saw, he says, what looked to him like a great mountain burning with fire. And that mountain was cast into the sea, and one-third of the sea became blood. One-third of the sea creatures perished, and one-third of the ships were destroyed. Now, because the scripture says in verse 8 about that mountain, let me see where it says it, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire, because it uses those little words, as it were, this is a case where we know that what John saw falling into the sea was not literally a great mountain burning with fire, but it was something like it. Now, remember, he is describing what he saw from his first century experience. And many Bible expositors feel that this could perhaps be a falling meteor or a falling comet, something like that. You know, and they can be huge, crashing into part of the earth. And again, this judgment is not without prior example from human history. Back in the book of Exodus, once again, we're told that Moses lifted up his rod and he smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and all the waters that were in the river turned to what? Blood. You've all seen the Ten Commandments. And the fish that were in the river died, and the river stank. That stank because of all the dead sea creatures. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. When water is affected chemically or biochemically and poisons multitudes of microorganisms, it turns the water into a red blood, you know, red blood, blood red color. And this tragedy in our day is known as, who knows, what it's called, right, red tides, right? And they occasionally occur in our modern oceans. Now, we can imagine 
the effect that something like this would have on the world's inhabitants when one-third of the world's oceans, we're talking here now about seas, so these are, this is salt water, when one-third of the oceans would become bloodied and one-third of all the shipping industry would be destroyed. Now, another possibility, other than this being a falling meteor or comet, is that such massive death to the Earth's seas may be caused by the chemical reaction in the water from something such as radioactivity or nuclear fallout following an atomic explosion. I don't know. I'm just throwing out ideas as to what could cause these things. Now, the third trumpet bittered waters. You see, this is painting a pretty morbid scene, isn't it? A one-third of the earth. And it could be one-third for the burnt land over here, maybe another third for the bloodied waters, maybe another, you know, so maybe it affects a whole lot of different parts of the world, or maybe it's all one part. I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe it's all in the Middle East, but I don't know. All right, let's look at the third trumpet judgment, verses 10 and 11. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers. See, now we're talking about the fresh water. And upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. As I just, we just talked about the fact that during the second trumpet judgment, one-third of all the salt waters, the oceans, will be contaminated. And now with the third judgment, one-third of all the fresh water supply of the earth will suffer a similar fate. The rivers and the fountains of waters will become polluted by a great star which will fall from heaven. Job happens to tell us that God names the stars of the heavens. And the name of this falling star is what? Wormwood. Not a very pleasant name for a star. Wormwood is the Greek word absinthos. And it comes from the absinthe plant, which is a very bitter plant. And when that plant is mixed with water and imbibed, when it is drunk, the person becomes drunk. And then he dies. So it's not a very good way to get a high. Because they die. That rhymed. The poison salt waters, which resulted from the previous judgment that we looked at, had produced fatal results on all the creatures of the sea. You know, the the sea creatures died. But this next judgment, which poisons all of the drinking waters... Uh, kills many men, doesn't it? It says, and many men die. So many people are involved in this judgment. They lose their lives. Now, both the second and the third trumpet judgments seem to come from heavenly intruders. You know, uh, one was like a great mountain, and the other one is a falling star. One is mostly solid, the mountain, and the other one is mostly fluid. It says, burning like a lamp. Now, the word there for star in the Bible, in in the original language, can actually refer to any heavenly body. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a star. It could be a flaming meteor or, again, a comet. And some have suggested that it also may be the result of an explosion by a device invented by man. 
Now, the immediate results, you know, of a limited nuclear exchange, I say limited because this only involves one-third of the Earth, the immediate results of a nuclear exchange would include radiation poisoning, environmental destruction, uncontrollable fires, massive food shortages, air and water and pollution, uh, air and water pollution, soil contamination, and unparalleled, of course, unparalleled human suffering, all of which fit in perfectly with John's descriptions, uh, description of the results of these trumpet judgments. And yet, the recurring one-third proportion of these destructions, you know, one-third of the earth, one-third of the sea, one-third of the drinking waters, this one-third, 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 that should give men a clue, as all these things are happening, that these various calamities are not merely random, event, you know, natural events. It's just not random events of nature, nor of their own wicked devices either. They couldn't plan it so that just one-third would be involved. They are clues to give men um, the opportunity to realize that these are controlled divine judgments. So God is giving them that warning. You know, get your act right, get saved. Well, let's look at the fourth trumpet, and then we'll just about be ready to close. This is the blackened sky, verses, uh, no, just verse 12. It says, And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part, here we go again, third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. He goes out of his way to mention third, third, third all the time. Now, this fourth trumpet brings chaos and it brings confusion to the sky above the earth. The sun, the moon, and the stars are darkened, we're told, for one-third of the day and one-third of the night. Now, there is a lot in Scripture which tells us of astronomical uh, disturbances in, in the heavens which will occur in the latter days. For example, Isaiah 13, 9 tells us this, Behold, a day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with fierce, wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth, and the moon shall not cause its light to shine. So this is right out of the Old Testament prediction. And hopefully some men and women might remember the Lord's own words in Luke 21, 25, 26, when he said, and there shall, this is talking about the signs that will precede his second coming. He said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. You think people will be perplexed about all this? Yes, they will be perplexed. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Those are the Lord's own words. So it's, and it's interesting to remember also that it was on the fourth day of creation that God spoke the space into being, or the, the, the sun and the moon into um, existence. And he said that they were to be, and the stars also, they were to be for signs. Remember, he said for signs. Are they used as signs here? Yes. 
for signs, for seasons, for days and years. We understand the days, years, and seasons, but the stars and the sun and the moon are also going to be signs of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as fearful as all of these, and perhaps, again, this could be caused by um, nuclear fallout, and all the debris that is caused in the air. You know, it could darken the sun and the moonlight. The moon just reflects the sun. So all that could be the, you know, if there's a nuclear war, you know the sky would be darkened. So again, this would fit right into a nuclear holocaust. But as fearful as all these judgments are, they are nothing compared to the last three trumpet judgments. And that's what this last angel warns about. And we'll close with this. Let's look at the soaring warning, verse 13. John says, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets, trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. John testifies again. Notice how many times in Revelation he says that he saw this with his own eyes. He heard it with his own ears. He looks. There's an angel flying through the midst of the, the, the heaven, you know, the atmospheric heaven. I imagine he circles the entire globe and he proclaims in a, what kind of a voice? <laughs> a loud voice, a very serious message of warning to the inhabitants of the earth. And whenever it says inhabitants of the earth or the earth dwellers, it speaks about the ungodly. This message is for the ungodly, and his message is simply, woe, woe, woe. That's one warning of woe for each of the three remaining trumpet judgments. In other words, what this angel is saying is if you think these first four have been bad, you haven't seen anything yet. They've only involved one-third of the earth. The rest will involve the whole earth, and they will plague men. The last three trumpet judgments, you get an idea by just looking at this picture, will actually take us behind the scenes of the human conflict to see the ultimate in spiritual warfare, which will be being fought for control of the earth. So we get into spiritual warfare next. And the extent of these woe judgments, as I said, will affect the entire world. And I know that it's difficult for you and I, living as we do in a day of grace, to imagine such worldwide catastrophic judgments as we have been hearing about and as we will hear about in these next three judgments. Yet the word of God is clear, isn't it? I mean, the men and women of Noah's day had never seen rain. And they laughed and they said that could never happen. The word of God is very clear. This is not pie in the sky, dreams. This is really going to happen. And that's why every week I just say the same thing to you as we close. Let's get busy telling men and women, boys and girls, about the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can be saved now and not have to go in to this horrible time of tribulation.